right, well, uh, it is now the Sunday after Christmas. Um, how many people are still listening to Christmas music? Come on, confess, confess. There are, yeah, especially kiddos, right? Some Christmas music still going on. Um, it's winding down, though, and today I am going to tell uh, some, some stories about songs and song writers, and the first story I want to tell is about a country music singer, and for some of us, that's already a problem because you may reasonably wonder, country and music, is that even music, right? So, I know, dangerous territory. Just hang with me here, wherever you're at. I, I will not state my position on the matter <clears throat> at all. Um, but, but if you're a country music fan, you know this guy, Travis Tritt, right? Anyone know this guy here, Travis Tritt? Man, that's some sweet hair right there. I'm, I'm just jealous. There was an interview not too long ago where Travis Tritt um, revealed kind of a little-known secret about his early years of, of gigging, and he'd be out playing these out-of-the-way shows at, you know, places, bars, places. It just kind of would get different, uh, uh, dangerous sometimes. It would get dangerous sometimes. And one time when a, a, a brawl broke out, um, Tritt tried something that worked so well, it became his standard operating procedure whenever a fight would stop at any, start at any of his gigs. If a fight broke out, he said, um, I'm going to try my, my southern guy voice. Just when things started getting out of hand, is that close, right? All right. Uh, when, when, I, won't, I won't keep the voice going. Um, things were getting out of hand, he said, bikers were reaching for their pool cues and rednecks were heading for the gun rack. I'd start playing Silent Night. <laughs> said it could be anywhere. It could be the middle of July. I did not care. Uh, Tritt said that as he played, grown men would stop everything and calm down. He said sometimes they'd even start crying, standing there, watching me sweat and play Christmas carols. <laughs> uh, true story. And that may have worked for Travis Tritt, but, but I got to tell you that the very first Christmas carol that was ever shown to us had exactly the opposite effect. Uh, there's a Methodist preacher named Stanley Jones. Uh, he called this particular Christmas carol, the first one, the one I'm referring to, he called it, quote, the most revolutionary document in the history of the world. Um, another uh, religious leader, William Temple, was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he instructed their missionaries to poverty-stricken India never to read the words of this Christmas song in public because it could incite riots in the street. Interesting, right? Another, another um, biblical theological writer said that when you read the lyrics of this Christmas carol, you, quote, sniff the powder of dynamite. Now, the Christmas carol that I'm referring to is known by many as the Magnificat. Uh, it's a Latin word chosen because the first word of the song is magnify, and this song is composed by an unmarried teenage peasant girl who had recently found out she was pregnant. Anybody know this girl's name? You guys are really on top of it. Well done today. And so we got to look at why is this song so dangerous? Like, what's in this song this song that we find in Luke chapter 1 that would cause it to be censored in some cultures. And by the way, we're going to put the verses up on the screen uh, verse by verse. But if you have your Bible with you, I would encourage you to open it up so you can see the whole thing at once. Um, it's Luke chapter 1. We'll start in verse 46. And as I read it, um, just imagine 
What kinds of people, places, cultures might feel threatened by Mary's carol, her psalm? Luke 1, starting verse 46, Mary sang, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation he has shown strength with his arm he has scattered the proud and and the thoughts in their hearts he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate he has filled the hungry with good things but the rich he has sent away empty he has helped his servant israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Not Abraham Lincoln. Yes, no, not that one. <laughs> this is Mary's song. And we read these words. And again, I think it's pretty reasonable, at least for us in our culture, to go, wait a minute. This is the most revolutionary document in the history of the world? Really? Like, this is the one that these theologians uh, say, the Christmas song that missionaries in India were told to never read in public because it could incite riots in the streets. I mean, we would have to get outside of our own cultural lens for a moment, um, but, but it wouldn't take too long to look at this passage and maybe kind of narrow down the particular verses um, that would be the ones that, you know, raise the anxiety levels of the powerful, of the proud, of the mighty, of the rich. In fact, we'll cheat and just put them on the screen here. Um, these are some of the verses, but particularly the verses that might cause those levels of anxiety um, to be frightening or anxiety-ridden for powerful people, but become an anthem for the humble, the poor, the hungry. And in order to really get into this, what I want to do is tell a little bit of the story behind the song, because there's always a story behind the song. So let's meet Mary. Let's meet Mary right here. Um, Mary was Jewish, um, and uh, she was poor. She was a Galilean. Uh, she lived in Nazareth town. She um, was a, a young woman. When we first meet her in the scriptures, She's in her teens, um, we don't know for sure, but probably 14, 15, 16-year-olds, something, something like that. She's, she's very young. Uh, a pastor named Brian Zahn points out she lives in a farming culture, so she knew about sheep folds and olive groves. She would know how to spin wool and how to press olives. She'd be very familiar with that kind of life. And Galilee was the area where she grew up. Um, Galilee was the place where Jews and Gentiles had lots of contact, lots of interaction. There were lots of Gentiles in this region uh, that we see on the map here, kind of near the top. End. So Galilee, where Mary grew up, where she grew up, it was this place here in the top of the map here in the kind of yellow where um, she was around. And she was around a lot of Jews, a lot of Gentiles. And so she was familiar um, to the Gentiles um, and their pagan ways of pagan worship. And throughout Israel's history, uh, Galilee was the place where revolutions would start. Even if looking at the map here, you could see this occupied place where Jewish people would start an uprising because it's 
kind of toward the edge of what's going on here. And in the end, in the mind of the empire, the Roman Empire, you might say it this way. Um, trouble always starts in Galilee. Those Galilean folks, they're hotheads, they're troublemakers, they're always trying to start a revolt there. So the ruling Roman army, they had a strong presence in Galilee because it was known to be a troublesome place, which then caused lots of tension. And the Jewish people resented the presence of this Roman army that was there just to keep them in line. And so it's easy to understand why these impoverished, oppressed, occupied Galileans were deeply yearning for their Messiah. Um, their deliverer. They were yearning for the one who would come and rescue them. That's the context of where Mary lived. Now, in this area, um, right around the time we meet Mary, there were some very strange stories that had been spreading about Mary's older relative, uh, Elizabeth. And the rumors had been going around, and they were actually true stories. Um, and Elizabeth, uh, she was quite a bit older, uh, maybe even most think about 30 years older than Mary was. And, and Luke chapter 1 tells that story. Um, Elizabeth was married to a priest named Zachariah. They'd not been able to have any kids, and now they've become older. And so the time for having kids has passed for that to be able to happen. And by the way, do you ever notice in the Bible how often that story kind of crops up over and over? Like when there's no hope, when there's no hope, then something is conceived. Um, you get a surprise. And that's what happens here. Um, and Elizabeth, in this story, certainly she had by now in her life given up on any hope of having a baby. But now she's in the sixth month of her pregnancy. She's going to give birth to a child, and it's going to be a boy. And his name is, anyone? John. And uh, John, by the time he grows up and is 30... Um, he starts preaching in the wilderness. He's baptizing folks. Everybody calls him John the... Yeah, there you go. You guys are really on top of it. Good job. So, all right. So, that's a part of the story here that's important. Uh, and so, let's go back to Mary. When we, when we meet her here in the text, she's a teenager. Again, she's also engaged to be married soon. She's, she's young. She's awfully young to be getting married, but that's just how it was done back then. And she was engaged to be married to Yusuf Barheli. Um, we call him Joseph. That's the anglicized version of it. But we just want you to know he's Jewish. And so Mary is engaged to Yusuf Bar-Eli. And by the way, her name wasn't exactly Mary. Again, we have our English version. Um, we call her Mary. But her, her name in that day in that culture would have been Miriam. And Miriam, she was named after the sister of Moses. Um, how many of you know that Moses had a sister? Yeah, Moses had a sister. So 1,500 years before we meet Mary, um, way back, Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt. They come to the Red Sea. God parts the waters. They cross the Red Sea. Pharaoh and his army and chariots try to follow them through. They pursue. And then the waters all come down, and the Egyptian army is all drowned in the sea. So that's part of the Miriam story. Um, because when, when Miriam sees that happen, she celebrates. Um, she sees they're now safe on the other side, safe from Pharaoh and his army and the chariots. And so Miriam, 
Back then in Exodus, she sings this song. In fact, she and some other women um, says they sang and danced and played tambourine. So she sounds like a good Pentecostal right here. She's going after it, and she sings in Exodus 15, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider are flown into the sea. Anybody remember that song from church? Thank God we don't sing that song anymore, because um, that's been stuck in my head. You know that song? Oh, man. Yes. So, um, But she sang that song. And again, her name, Moses' sister, it's Miriam. And now catch this. I did not know this before studying on this. This is really wild. But the name Miriam means rebellion. Fascinating, right? So Moses' sister, she was no wilting wallflower. She got some fire in her. Miriam, her name means rebellion. And when God drowns the Egyptian army, she's like, yes, right? Praise God, I'm going to get a tambourine. I'm going to dance. I'm going to sing. I'm going to go a Pentecostal, right? She is passionate. She is fierce. And so fast forward here to where we meet our hero in the first chapter of Luke. Um, this is who the engaged fiancé of Yosef Bar-Eli is named after, Miriam. We call her Mary, but her name was Miriam. And again, her name, too, then meant rebellion, which is just a fascinating, revolutionary name. I mean, think about being the parents um, that named their daughter Miriam, rebellion, where they did it, in Galilee, at the end of the first century B.C., at the same time they're being occupied by the Roman Empire, just naming your child Miriam was kind of an act of defiance against the oppression that they were experiencing. It's as if Miriam's parents were saying, Mary's parents were saying, oh yeah, 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 we, we, we have not forgot. We know our story, and we may right now here in Nazareth be oppressed and occupied, but we know our history, and the same God that raised up Moses and delivered us, then that same God will someday bring another deliverer to come, and we're going to rebel against the system. We're going to be free from oppression again. Someday meet our daughter now, Miriam, right? And I want us to have this picture of Mary this way, because instead of it's sort of the docile, passive, sweet little girl, I have a feeling that Mary was pretty feisty. I mean, first of all, right, her name, her time, her place, that society that she grows up, and then this song that she writes, and then a few of the episodes we see in Scripture, I think it's safe to say that Mary was actually pretty feisty. Her name, Mary, Miriam, was making a statement. It expressed Jewish hope and expectation. So I believe that Mary was more like a firecracker, right? And it's this Mary who Luke tells us gets a visit from an angel, informing her, what we know from the Christmas story, that she's going to give birth to Jesus, and that is really strange, right? I mean, that's just strange no matter how you slice it, but I bet it jogs her memory that there's some other strange stuff going on in Galilee, and so she rushes off <laughs> to go see her older pregnant relative, Elizabeth. And as soon as Mary sees Elizabeth, Elizabeth blesses Mary, her unwed, pregnant, younger relative. And after that happens, um, that's when feisty firecracker Mary bursts into this revolutionary song that we read earlier, the one that we started with. And I wish we had time to really unpack what I want to look at next here, um, uh, because it's a song from the Old Testament I want to look at. Um, many scholars believe that, that Mary was inspired by an Old Testament story 
thousand years before her uh, of another woman, a barren woman named Hannah, who also had a surprise birth. And Hannah had a baby who became eventually the prophet Samuel. And Hannah composes this song that we're guessing actually kind of inspired Mary a thousand years later when Mary is inspired with the song that we hear. And you can read the whole song in 1 Samuel chapter 2, but I just want to highlight a few verses from Hannah's song. And, and I think they sound similar to Mary's song. Um, and the whole thing, the whole song, both of them actually are about one theme, the theme of reversal. The first will be last, the last will be first, and that's good news for the poor. Does any of that sound familiar? So just a couple of examples from Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. She says, my heart rejoices in the Lord. The Lord has made me strong. And verse 4, she says, The bow of the warriors is now broken, but the feeble are now made strong. Right? In other words, the strong are now made weak, and the weak are strong. This is a reversal. Verse 5, Those who were well-fed are now hungry, and those who were hungry are now well-fed. Again, another reversal. Like, hey, you're well-fed? <laughs> Well, now you're hungry. Oh, you're hungry? Well, now you'll be well-fed. See, everything gets flipped around. Verse 8, she says, The Lord lifts up the poor from the dust and the needy from the garbage dump. He sets them among princes and places them in seats of honor. And I just love that picture because um, here's somebody who's at the bottom of the barrel, a beggar living on the edge of a garbage dump. Another version uses the, the phrase an ash heap, the dust, the ash heap, which is just a symbol of their mourning and something's completely wasted and done for, the ash heap. But Hannah says when God comes, God's going to pick them up and change everything and give them a place of beauty and dignity. And then verse 9, for all the earth is the Lord's. He has set the world in order. For he gives power to his king and increases the strength of his anointed one. And Hannah right here, she's declaring God will set the world in right order. It may not be in order today, but he will set it in right order. One day God will make it right. And that's Hannah's song. That's Hannah's song. And again, I think it sounds a lot like... Mary's song and some of the themes, just this great reversal. In fact, we look back at Mary singing in verse 51 of Luke 1, where she says, He, God, has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. See, what Mary's doing right here in this verse is that she's rejoicing that when God comes into the world, he will deal with the bullies. God will deal with the bullies. All the people who push others around, all the loudmouths, the narcissists, all of the people who abuse and use and mock and threaten every liar, every conspiracy monger. And so why does Mary rejoice? Well, part of it is because the bullies are finally going to be dealt with. And I don't know about you, but some of you, I'm guessing, have been bullied in your life before. Anyone? Yeah, I, I, I've had that happen, right? Um, but somebody that's stronger than you or maybe even someone that's just better connected than you, someone who maybe had power over you, maybe someone who abused you. Um, so have you ever been bullied? Um, when, when I was in 
seventh grade, I was one of the smallest, scrawniest kids uh, in, my, in my class. Um, and uh, that already made it, you know, susceptible. But then we moved uh, again. We moved. And in the new town that we moved to, there was, of course, a bully, Phil. Phil was at least a head taller than me, weighed probably 50 or 60 pounds more than me. Not that that was hard, but... <laughs> um, But after school, uh, he and his buddies often would follow me and the one friend that I had made, and they would just kind of yell at us and intimidate us and try to, you know, just really get under our skin. And I remember one day, my friend and I, we were coming home after school from golf practice. Uh, We had our golf club bags on our backs, and Phil starts chasing us. He pushes my friend down, and kids, I don't recommend this next part, so... I don't recommend this, but um, something in me just kind of snapped, and I reached back, I grabbed a golf club out of my bag, and I swung it at him. Thankfully, I missed, right? (laughs) But all that pent-up adrenaline and fear just came out in this quick motion, this swing, and he ducked, he fell back, I missed him, Um, lucky for him and for me, because if I had connected, it would have been really bad um, for both of us. Um, But then everyone, um, my friend and his buddies, they were all in shock as Phil ran across the street and took off the other way. Um, My my, my friend then just kind of nervously starts laughing at the unbelievable nature of what had just happened. And actually some of the other kids started laughing as well. And the short story is that Phil never bothered or bullied us again. And some of us hear a story like that and something in us goes, yes, right? Yes, there's something that feels right when a bully finally gets stood up to. Or in another situation, maybe where an abuser is finally caught. Or in other situations, when a, when a boss who's been sexually harassing young women for years finally gets exposed and his reputation goes back to where it needs to be. Um, or, or when a molester is finally imprisoned, we see something, we know that's not right what happened. And then there's something in us when justice is served that says, yes, when that happens. Um, or, or when someone who's greedy, selfish, and, and they injure other people through their greed, and they finally get punished. Um, makes me think of uh, Martin Shkreli. Um, maybe you've heard of him. He was a former hedge fund Manager, and he outraged almost every newspaper editor in America back in 2015 when it was discovered that he had bought the exclusive rights in the U.S. to sell a drug called Daraprim. And this drug had been around for more than 60 years. It's a life-saving drug, and it treats a rare parasitic infection. And this drug is the only approved treatment for toxoplasmosis, which is a disease that strikes mainly pregnant women, cancer patients, and AIDS patients. And so Shkreli decided he was going to buy this drug. Um, it wasn't being you know, charged enough. They weren't charging enough for it. So he raised the price of this drug from $13.50 per pill to $750 per pill. I mean, there were headlines across the country. I don't know if you remember this, but... Um, Some of the headlines across uh, the U.S. called him America's most hated man. (laughs) Um, Here's how bad it was. Um, Both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton agreed that this guy was a bad guy. That's like, I mean, (laughs) this got it right. Does that make the point? Yeah. 
And so um, he didn't care, though. Martin, he just laughed it off. He loved the attention, and he said, maybe I'll just raise the price even more. And then in 2017, he was charged with securities fraud, conspiracy. It turns out he'd been manipulating investors through a web of lies and deceit in some other areas for a long time. He had cheated people out of millions of dollars. Uh, short story, he was convicted and sent to prison. He was just released this last year, but if he screws up, he could be sent back to finish the 20-year term uh, if he doesn't walk the straight and narrow. Um, now, think about the folks who could not afford their medication when it went from $13.50 per pill to $750 per pill. Think about them. How, how do you think that they felt when they learned that this greedy bully responsible for their misery was finally facing prison time. Listen, I just have to say this. Jesus Christ is always on the side of the weak. Like if you wonder which, decide, which side of a dispute Christ is on, Christ is always on the side of the abused. Christ is always on the side of the weak. Christ is always on the side of the marginalized. Christ is always on the side of the person who is being stepped on. And that's why all through the Bible, you see that God is always on the side of the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the person who's being pushed around and has nowhere and no one to look to other than to Jesus. Yeah, he's on their side. That's the side he's on. And this is why Mary's song is so subversive, because she's saying that God is showing up and that the abusive, corrupt systems and people are going down. That the bullies of that day, the bullies of this day, even when it looks like they might be winning or getting away with it, that Jesus is on the move. His kingdom's advancing and that God is going to make sure that his kingdom, his way works out and wins out in the end. See, Jesus is for everyone, and the coming of Jesus is a blessing for everyone. But hear me, only, only the broken and only those who know that they need him experience the fullness of the grace that he offers us. See, there's a problem, though, especially when we kind of live in the place where we live, in the culture we live, in the time that we live, um, because we would have to admit brokenness, wouldn't we? And admitting brokenness would take humility. It would take some humility. I mean, if you're in power, if you're ignoring the oppressed, or you're the one causing oppression, you're not going to like songs about kings being brought down from their thrones. <laughs> you know, Herod um, or Caesar, these guys, right, the, the rich, the powerful, the violent, don't like those kinds of songs. They, they like the way that their world is arranged. But, but God, God doesn't like it. God says, I'm changing things. I'm reversing things. And these songs by Mary and Hannah are revolutionary songs that express God's heart for the downtrodden and for the broken. See, Jesus is Good news to the poor and the broken, the oppressed and discouraged. But the flip side of that is if you don't have a need, if there's no place of brokenness, if we live our life, you know, my kingdom come and my way be done, then we would never see why we need Jesus. We wouldn't even see why we would need a savior. We got it figured out, we think. 
we actually, if we live in that space, we might be offended by Mary's song, right? We hear this song and we go, oh, come on, Doug, are you saying that God plays favorites? Are you claiming that God actually chooses sides? Well, I'm just going to point back to Scripture. Um, the book of James. Um, James tells us whose side God is on in chapter 4, verse 6, where it says, The Lord opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So the proud, the, the mighty, God opposes the bullies, the narcissists, the power hungry. There's no grace not because it's not available, it's because they don't need it and won't step into it. And so God opposes that, but the flip side of the verse says that God moves towards the humble, those who are on the ash heap of life. God moves towards the broken, the hurting. Psalm 34 tells us that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And so when you and I, friends, when we are in touch with brokenness, when we stand willing and humble to repent of our own sin, and not just that, but when we also find ourselves ready to stand with those who are already broken and humbled, when we do that, then we are wide open to experience God's grace. Wide open, because again, the Lord opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So anyone here this morning in need of grace? You know, some of us, I, I know we start this new year, we know our places of brokenness. We know where the ash heap of our life is. Maybe you're struggling financially. Maybe you don't have enough money to pay all your bills or you're facing eviction or bankruptcy. Maybe you don't have enough money to cover utilities or medical bills or, or your college tuition for this next semester. Maybe the business you are owning and running is just teetering on the edge. And so you might know something about brokenness. Or, or maybe your struggle is a relational uh, struggle. That ash heap, the brokenness of your life is strained or broken relationships. You maybe find yourself um, at odds with your spouse, maybe separated from spouse or on the journey toward divorce. Or maybe, like me, you've been through that journey and Christmas is the reminder of a pain of divorce that still impacts you and your time with family members. Um, see, Christmas can be a time when we get real in touch with our relational brokenness because we see the holes in our lives uh, the pain of being estranged from family members um, gets real intense around holiday times, doesn't it? Um, this is a time of year that, that lots of us are painfully aware of loss. Maybe you've lost a parent or a spouse, a child or brother or sister, somebody that they weren't there this Christmas. Uh, just yesterday, Heidi and I sat with a mom of two teenagers in her 40s whose husband passed away suddenly just uh, before Christmas. Very painful. Um, I know some of you in this room have lost uh, this year or the last year uh, a spouse or a loved one, and it's painful. You know the excruciating pain of loss and brokenness far too well. And so when I talk about the imagery of the ash heap of mourning and pain, you go, oh, yeah, I get that. I'm right there. I'm in it. I'm in it. 
remember, again, friends, hear me. God is close to you in that place. God is with you in your sorrow, in your brokenness. And even when you feel alone, know this, that Jesus is drawn to you. His heart is with you. His grace is available to you. And you are never, ever alone. With all that in mind, I just want to return to this revolutionary song that Mary sang that got us started in this direction, this good news that she sang that Jesus has come to turn everything upside down, to subvert every other king and kingdom, including yours and mine. Um, and he's come for us in our brokenness, in our poverty. Um, how many of you have seen episodes of The Chosen? Anyone? So there's a special from last year where um, uh, they imagined Mary as this older woman and she's reflecting back on the song um, that we started with today. And she's having someone write it down to deliver it to Luke. And what we're going to see is her as an older woman remembering and flashing back even to how her words, her song came to life when the baby Jesus was born. Let's uh, let's watch this. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For behold, from now on, generations will call me blessed. He who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their throne and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. song of Hannah, but even more beautiful. Friends, it's 
true. It is representative of the heart of God and the nature of God that God chose to show up, not through the wealthy or powerful, but God came to and Jesus was born through a broken, powerless, oppressed people in the ash heap of poverty and his birth is another display of that reversal which means mercy for those who know they can't do it without him it means hungry hearts being filled with what God has for us and it means as Mary's saying that oppression and the bullies are going down because God opposes the proud but gives what to the humble grace grace and listen, by the way, I, I know some of us are doing great this morning. Maybe you go, I don't have a lot of brokenness right now. And if that is you, um, that's, that's, that's good, that's good. Um, but if you want to experience God's grace this year, then, then move towards those who Christ is close to. Um, extend care to people that, that Jesus cares about, like help Help those who are being bullied, who are struggling, who are overwhelmed with life. Reach out to those who are broken and mourning and in despair. So if you're doing great, then go find someone to be with and stand with in that realm. I know some of our folks are standing with that family that just lost a dad, and it means the world to them. That's a way to be representing the heart of God. But those of us who, that's not true of the rest of us who know our places of brokenness, of sickness, um, it's hard, yes, but just let's remember who, who gets God's grace? The humble, the broken, those who mourn according to Jesus. And so there's, there's an advantage in naming our brokenness. Because with the coming of Jesus, though it was a gift for everyone, only those who know they are in need of him fully experience his grace. Worship team, will you come? And this morning, if you are someone who is in the middle of despair, a place of brokenness, of loss, of waiting, of grieving, I just want to remind you that God is with you God is for you, and he desires for you to experience his grace even in the middle of your brokenness and pain. And it may not make it all go away, but you will know that his grace is with you, that you are not alone, and he's going to help you as you move through anything that you are facing. So again, anyone here this morning in need of God's grace, is there anyone... Well, right now, as we get ready to sing, I just want you to take a moment and name your brokenness. Just name your brokenness. Quietly whisper it to God. Just name your brokenness. Are you able to name the places where you struggle, um, where you have pain? Are you able to even name your secret battles, your health issues, the financial strain, maybe the addiction you struggle with, the relational breakdowns, in humility just before God right now, will you, in this moment, will you name those things even right now?
Jesus, um, we come to you with grateful hearts that, that even this first Christmas carol is such a reminder. Mary's song is such a reminder of your heart, your love for all of us, but particularly the way you are close to the brokenhearted. You're close to us in the places where we are in despair. Maybe we even feel like we have no hope in a place of woundedness. God, you are near to us. You are with us. That, that even if we see ourselves as broken or deficient or defective, God, that is not how you see us. I thank you that you welcome us in, in our brokenness. That when we come up, hungry and thirsty for amazing grace. You offer your grace to us. You welcome us. You bring us in and you surround us with your love. Jesus, would you set us more and more free in your love, that our hope would be in your goodness, in your kingdom. We thank you, God, that you are for us. You are not against us pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us?